to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Raymond Nakamura. And myself, Scott Owens. And Momoko Ito. Our special guest. Thanks for having me. Where is she from? I'm visiting from New Denver. I'm the manager of the Nikkei Internment Memorial Center there, but I've been lucky enough to be here at the Nikkei National Museum for six months on a BC Arts Council early career development grant. We're really happy to have you here. I'm just going to start with reading the writing that they have about the exhibition. In shiny gold. Yes, there is a lot of shiny gold and a lot of bright colors in this exhibition. Magic Hour is the surreal time just after sunrise or before sunset, and we are excited to tease out the magic in the archives, looking at color and graphic elements, DIY initiatives and archival processes. Instant Coffee brings their collaborative and often mischievous approach to our historic collections. They make the usually hidden activities of collections management into a publicly accessible event. We invite you to visit, revisit, and interact with the exhibition as it continues to change. I love how the light on the wall here reflects on the metallic lettering. Oh, and it yeah. looks like magic hour. It's oh. like a sunset. The way they've got the fluorescent tubes over here, and they've got the coloring. The, the gradation of color. It's an abstracted version of a sunset, perhaps. For our podcast, we're going just to go around the exhibition, describe and give our impressions of some of the objects, what we think about the objects, and provide a little bit of context for them. The first object that we have, it's a so, piece of tile from Powell Street, and so there's square tiles that are colored. It's from 331, and it was a tile that originally said Mimi on it. It's in five pieces in our collection, and they're only displaying one of the pieces. And it's mounted on a mirror ball. Yes. And the little, if you imagine the mirror ball, it's got the little squares, which are sort of similar in scale to the little squares that are making up the mosaic on the surface. Had you ever seen this on Powell Street? I have. Yeah. Yeah, as a child walking up and down Powell Street in, in the 90s, there were a few other businesses that had these named tiled fronts on Powell right. Street. Yeah. But I do recall the Nimi Shoten. Like yeah, yeah. 331, so. I had been giving walking tours, and they still had it there before they did the major renovations. I know that this chunk is quite heavy because I had to load it up from Bob <laughs> Nimi's house into the back of the car to get it over to the museum. When they were doing that renovation over there, somehow he got word, so this is the son of the original owner, the Nimi Shoten. He got the pieces and then it was sitting in his garden for a while. I didn't make any workman's compensation claims afterward. <laughs> but. And it's interesting too in the context of instant coffee because they used to have a studio on Powell Street as well and they were right around this area before they were forced to evacuate the studio quite quickly and so for them there's a little bit of a connection. I guess they can commiserate with a Japanese evacuation. I quite like this piece here, the, the saiwashi socks, the hand-knitted fisherman socks. What do you like about it? Well, we've got the cream-colored wool here with the, the green accenting and the idea that somebody consciously made a decision to add a decorative element to these very basic socks, I really like that. I had heard something about they were consciously trying to copy the First Nation style of knitting. And Saiwashi is sort of a derogatory Japanese version of what they call First Nations people. Well, it's actually the Japanese word that they came up with for Salish. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. We have these bloomers. Bloomers. Bloomers was what uh, what our official loan document said. But uh, they're quite interesting. They were used as well by fishermen and part of using this wool and things like that before they had fancy diving outfits that would keep you warm while you were in the water were these woolen and other fabrics. 
but they, they weren't actually in the water when they were doing it. I mean, they were on the boats doing it, right? But it would be cold in any case. But they would get a lot of water on them because there are a lot of materials now that can react to water right. and produce heat from that, whereas these cannot. Although wool is supposed to be good for keeping you relatively warm even when it's wet. And dry as well. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. I mean, sheep seem to be up with it. <laughs> So this is on this triangle. They seem to like this, what would you call this, orangey-red bright color, which is used as a background for a lot of these displays that we have. Because they're really interested in, in making a lot of structures that are normally hidden visible. One of the requirements that we had is we didn't want our collections to be on bare wood because it's not very good for them. It's quite easy to scratch them. We said, oh, well, you know, we kind of need a felt buffer. And the interesting take they took on it was to work with the color scheme of the way that they had painted things. And also, a, a lot of the colors are reminiscent of that magic hour, the orangey, pink. Psychedelic. Yeah, a little bit psychedelic. Above it, we've got this screen showing some black and white footage of Vancouver and as well the Strathcona School and the Japanese Language School. What else do you know about this film? It was shot by a Japanese film company and like a lot of films from 1938 or earlier films is the purpose of the film is unclear. There's no narration. There's some panels that describe who people are or what it is or where it is or the year it is, which is how we have the information about it that we do. It goes around Strathcona and just some of the areas around that. And then there's a lot of footage of the fifth principal of the Vancouver Japanese Language School, Mr. Saito and his wife and around their house and then I think as well it shows them leaving for vacation but the provenance is interesting because we know this film company filmed it but from our collection it comes from a VHS tape that someone had seen on CBC and so we contacted CBC to see if we could get copyright clearance for it but CBC isn't really sure who owns it either. It definitely gives us an ambiance. We have the sense that we're at an earlier time and it reminds me of the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon of everything being black and white back then. You can see people wearing different kind of clothing and cars being different. Well, it's such yes. a great snapshot of the time, too. Some of the buildings that you notice there, the, the Vancouver Hotel and then yeah. the old courthouse, which is the Vancouver Art Gallery now. So it's neat to see that. We have a bunch of bound black collections of the New Canadian, the newspaper stacked up. From around the late 50s and 1977 is the last one. And then on top of this is a Japanese Canadian Citizens League national or oratorical challenge trophy that was won by Mary Endo in 1954. It was originally donated in 1938, so they carried this thing on after the war. I guess it had started and somehow they were doing that. Just standing in front of what's called a butsudan. It is a Buddhist altar, oftentimes seen in traditional Japanese homes. It's this beautiful black lacquered and gold gilded altar piece with a few shutter doors and some miniature scrolls. It's quite large, and this was donated by Min Tanaka, who is of the Tanaka Tofu family from Powell Street. They traveled this with them during internment and then brought it back with them eventually to Vancouver, and they've had it in their house ever since until they donated it a couple weeks ago. Visually it's one of the really interesting pieces as well just because it has I, the shiny gold element of it just like the lettering in the entry. Yes it does and I always think that this ornate style really seems 
very similar to the Rococo style of 19th century France. Some of the things, flowers at the top, French were influenced a lot by the Japanese. You know what I'm just noticing is how the black binding of the New Canadians has gold lettering and is going with this motif here too. You can see there's a little bit of mold on it. The smell, it seems to be a cross between mold and incense. It has that nice feel when you get close to it. It doesn't seem as sanitized as you'd think about objects in a museum. It has this I was in someone's home must to it. I'm just amazed that they carried it with them throughout the internment and, and afterwards. Quite a heavy piece too. So one of the things um, that Instant Coffee is really interested in um, is working with things where people kind of get involved in the exhibition and this is one way of doing it. So we took some records that were donated by... Um, these are... These are 40... I believe these are 45s and um, a lot of them are kind of from the 70s but they kind of harken back to an earlier age uh, and it's a lot of stuff that was just records collections that were donated by people of things that they listened to and uh, it's really interesting to have it set up. We've got pictures of people on the covers that are wearing kimono on. This woman has short hair and seems to be missing a tooth. And you can hear some of the music probably in the background right now. <laughs> These are post-war albums though, aren't they? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Even though one of them looks like a samurai, so it's, it's supposed to be... Nostalgic. Nostalgic. Yeah, oh, but yeah. it's interesting. It's it, it's interesting to see a lot of the records because they do kind of look like '70s records that are maybe nostalgic for the '40s or the '50s mm. um, in a lot of ways in terms of their aesthetic. Here we have another psychedelic pinky color. I guess that could also be a sun. And I see how it reflects off, and you've got this glow. Yes, on you know. yeah. likewise. Now it's this light box table with these four glass jars. Some of them are fuses. It was, it was interesting because they, the jars are transparent and they come from a boat building place but they do have fuses in them. You mean the way they were kept was like this already? Like yeah. they didn't put the stuff in there? No, 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 no. They were in our collection, these glass bottles with bolts and different things. Yeah, in yeah, them. yeah. Oh, okay. When I was a kid, my grandfather in, in our garage, he used baby food bottles with the lids screwed into a piece of wood and then he would have the the jar of nuts and bolts and things like that there's a lot of different lights in this but this is it has that nice pink that's a nice to pink it. to you to me that's a nice pink. That, that it's like it's is, a calming pink that's a calming pink to you that is like a burlesque pink to me <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yes, I would, I would not. Like district sort of pink. I, I, I would so not that's see it. Calming to you. That's it's calming. To, no, it's. I think it's partially because I think it's slightly lighter than what I would expect to see at a burlesque area. Right. We have the triangle of lights with a piece of felt on the floor, and then there's a really intricate model of a boat. That's. Uh, I'm not sure what the size ratio would be. So it's a fishing boat. Yeah. And you can see that it's got the net wound up in the back, the netting. Looks like a gill netter. So gill netter, yeah. But a fairly modern one. I mean, post-war one, anyway. Do you know about who made it? Uh, no, but... Royal Flash, it says. This actually is part of the Ryoshi exhibit, and it was made by someone with relation to the Japanese-Canadian boat builders, but it's not 
it's, it's not tagged as such. It's not part of our collection. It oh, was, I see. It's part of the Ryoshi exhibition, yeah. but they really liked some of the loan items from the Ryoshi exhibition that was here, as well as in Steveston. It's an interesting way to display the object, though. It appears to be floating. Maybe this is the Bermuda Triangle that it says. <laughs> now, behind it, there are these paintings that are UFO-like. Yeah, they're by Shizue Takshima, and they're from the 70s. This series of paintings has a lot to do with interpreting and experiencing internment. Over the years, her style changed quite a bit, and she used to use darker-looking motifs. But these ones actually use a lot of bright colors. It's a lot of pinks and blues and yellows. And then the figures in it, they, the way that the figures in the light works, it almost has partially like a dreamy-slash-sci-fi feel to it. For me, yeah. Is she the one who did the uh, child in a prison camp? Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she was interned in New Denver. Yes. Oh, I see. Here we have school desks. There's one that's old, and it's a bench, and you can see that it's subdivided. And then there's another one that's been newly made, but it looks like it's exactly the same dimensions and everything. And they're both sitting on top of these light boxes. So I guess you're not supposed to sit in them. No, we haven't had any issues with it yet. Do you have any of these in New Denver? No, we don't actually. The, the desks? And these desks are interesting because the one desk we have is from Tashmi, but the desk is originally from the Vancouver Japanese Language School because when people were being interned and they wanted to get supplies and things for school that Hiede Hiyoro Shimizu was organizing getting those the things that they could get were items that had previously been used by the Japanese community in Vancouver. So it's a two-person desk. We had single-person desks when I went to school. One of the artists was talking about it and who was similar age to me and he had gone to school in South Korea. He said they still had two-person desks when he went to school. In the film you also see children walking out holding hands in twos as some sort of buddy system when they're right. walking out of the Vancouver right. Japanese language school. I noticed there's no gum underneath it or any names yes. carved into it. I guess they were probably stricter on those things. The neat thing is the wear on the crossbar where you would put your foot. You can tell that there's grooves yeah. on each of the sides oh, where yeah. your feet would be. They have the old desk and then beside it they have a reproduction that's made out of the same unfinished plywood that they use. Plywood is a modern material. So. Yes, plywood is a modern material. And they use screws rather than nails. But they did use the handsaw instead of any sort of electrical tool. So, yeah, that was one of the things that they wanted to do to mirror the way that the other object was produced was they used pull saws. It's pretty clean cut. They have this big ramp thing. It looks like it would be tempting for a skateboarder. Yes. Maybe. So it's been built out of plywood, and then there are the large pieces of orange felt, and then all of these little items that are on display. This is an area that they've done a lot of change with because they do like to change the exhibition as time goes on, and they took these boxes of material. It was from a collection of the Oikawa family that they unwrapped during an event that they had. And so it's interesting to see everything all out here, but to know also that these constantly change. And I think for them, the unwrapping was a big part of it. This particular collection is one of the earlier collections. Jinzaburo Oikawa came to Canada in 1897, but then left in 1917. And so the objects are of a considerably older age 
than a lot of the other objects that we have in our collection. The first object you see is this white corset. It's a little bit dirty looking now, but that might just be partially a result of age. Corsets were originally designed for men as well as women, and so every time I see an object like this, especially of this age, I wonder, is that a corset for men or is that a corset for women? Well, so it has the clips <laughs> from holding, <laughs> holding up the stockings. Yeah, it's holding up the stockings. So, so I guess, well, I mean, maybe the, the men wore stockings as well. It, it's most likely for women. But that's always what I think about when I see those. Boycott, he was an important figure for his efforts to bring Japanese over yeah. in, into the fishing community. Yeah, he was an entrepreneur that came over and seems that his motivations were similar, I think, to a lot of Europeans coming over, that there was this vast land that they could come and set up some sort of business. He mortgaged Don Island, which is just below Richmond at one point, and had, set up, Fraser River. And had set up a community around Don Island to work with fishing and canning. Yeah, I thought he was a little bit concerned about how rowdy it was in Steveston, so he wanted to have a more yeah. proper community, so he set his up there. Before he was in Don Island, he was somewhere else that was also removed from Steveston. A lot of the objects are interesting, again, partially because of their age. There's some dolls here and doll furniture. There's a lock from a door. There's some really interesting fancy soaps fans and there's a fountain syringe it says syringe but we weren't sure if it was for enemas or not well it goes to great lengths to describe how to use it but without actually saying where you would insert the syringe and there's no points anywhere like there's nothing pointy there's nothing sharp enough inside that seems like it would be able to penetrate someone's skin although the logo says diamond so that's very pointy but yes <laughs> I'm thinking it's an enema bag. There's also a lot of other material for sewing. As a lot of Japanese Canadians did, and a lot of people at this time, they would make their own clothing. They were a more well-to-do Japanese Canadian family, so whether or not they would be making their own clothes or not. Now, I did get to watch the unwrapping process that Instant Coffee was doing, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Again, something that the public doesn't usually get to see. And to include the archival aspects, they're all wearing gloves and handling the, the objects carefully. And I think that they took some instruction from you prior to that. And were you dressed as a Buddhist priest or something to oversee and, and purifying the process? Did you do that? <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I was not purifying the process. It was a little bit nerve-wracking. And even right now, we have the objects just laying out with their tags yeah. that they were wrapped with, and so you have to look around to see which tag relates to which object sometimes. And then we have this large poster with all these people on it, subdivided as if they were hockey cards or something. This is a poster that we had work done on by the Canadian Conservation Institute, and it is to celebrate the enthronement of Emperor Showa. It's pictures of important Issei. It has information about each portrait is accompanied with the subject's name, prefecture, date of birth, and date of departure from Japan. This was something that they made to celebrate that, and I think also as a way to possibly make known to Japanese persons who they were and where they were, and it really demonstrates that connection to Japan for a lot of the Issei. And there are some women on the poster. I think we counted there were maybe three or four. Maybe there's more than that. And many of the men have mustaches. Yes. Very bushy mustaches. Some of them have beards that look like brooms. 
It's quite interesting to see the piece, to see the way that people did portraits. Now this was found unexpectedly, wasn't it, this poster? It was found somewhere in around North Vancouver and someone had just tossed it away or something and then the museum became aware of it and accepted it into the collection, of course, because it's quite an old item and because of internment we don't really have a lot of stuff from this era and also because of the fact that this is, everything on here is in Japanese. We don't actually have as much material that is purely Japanese. And it's interesting how nowadays when Japanese is written horizontally, it goes from left to right. But on this one, it's written from right to left. And the size of it is quite grand, isn't it? It's probably about four feet, probably a couple of feet wide as well. This woman is the first woman the Issei woman. Oh. Oya Yo is her name. So she had the first Nisei. And then the Yo is written in. Yeah, yeah. You notice that the women's names all seem to be in katakana. Oh, she's got an actual. Although that's his like sister. It looks like it's been torn. Yeah. yeah. I think he used to be the uh, consul general. Consul, yeah. He, yeah, he was the consul general. I think he, he was the first consul general? Yeah. Or was yeah, he? Yeah, that's yes. Right. Yeah, that's right. This video is taken from an interview with Kei Morioka, who was a Japanese-Canadian farmer. During the history of the museum, we went back and forth between doing oral histories, and then there were some videotaped histories as well. So it starts out with this panel that goes through a chronology of the life of Mr. K. Morioka, talking about where he was born, and then what he did while he was here, when he was married, how many children he had, and then this interview with him that's completely in Japanese. The video that we have here only has the first minute and 30 seconds, and it just has the chronology and then people sitting down to talk. It's interesting in just showing a template in terms of how some of the video oral histories were organized and how people worked with it. It's kind of funny that they put Kei Morioka, they're doing this interview and they don't give his full name. Yeah, which actually does seem similar to some of the oral histories we had. Even the interviewers, a lot of the times, they just have initials and then last name. They videotaped this from playing a VHS tape, so it has this haunting sound when it mm. starts up most of the time. And he was a strawberry farmer, it says, who returned after the war. To yes. We had talked about strawberry farming in the Before. previous podcast. So he, he must have liked strawberry farming or something to come back and do it some more. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting too because it didn't really seem that there were a lot of people who came back, especially yeah. farmers. So we have a whole bunch of suitcases, old suitcases, bags stacked up and arranged. And there's this large gold sheet hanging from, what is that, photo tripod or something? Something that's meant to hold a backdrop. And there's also a big yellow lamp just overhead. And then there's a bright light that can shine on the gold to make it look quite reflective. A lot of these suitcases have people's names painted on them or stamped on them. Yeah. We're quite familiar with these sorts of suitcases in New Denver. One of the themes that we've worked with, as well as the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, their section on Japanese Canadians also uses stacked suitcases and a, a large amount of suitcases in some way to kind of symbolize internment when people took all of the belongings they could fit in some pieces of luggage with them to internment camps. In one sense, it can be seen to symbolize that. In another sense, too, it's thinking about collecting and archiving. It's, it's situations in which people have essentially had to put their whole lives in a box so thinking about what they collected or what they would keep or what they would retain when they had such a limited amount of space so for the exhibition it brings to mind the idea of collecting. Momoko at the internment museum you said that you have a lot of suitcases like this is there anything in particular that you've noticed about them? The ones in New Denver? Yeah. Uh, yeah 
there's quite a few of them, but there's one in particular that's quite interesting. It's got an inscription on the front, and it's a box that says the initial J and then Yuzumi, the last name. And it housed a camera. So cameras were prohibited in internment camps at the time. However, this fellow, Jay Izumi, he was a photographer in Vancouver at Campbell Studios pre-war. And he was fortunate enough to be able to have his camera sent up to New Denver and was allowed to document various internment camps. So he and his family traveled around and took photos of some of the internment camps in the interior. And so we have the box that... What about the pictures? You guys have most of the pictures, I think. Yeah, because was, he was related to Basil Izumi, right? That's right, that's and, his father. Oh, yeah, and so okay. Basil Izumi has when donated a, a lot boy, of the he's photographs. He's got all those yeah. pictures as a cute boy. Right, yes. right, right, okay. This interesting stenciling happening at the bottom of yeah. this. So it says, those with taste, an important difference used to mark quality and define preference, is in the name instant coffee. As a product, instant coffee is an effective substitute. It mimics. I just needed to bring your attention to it because I did spend <laughs> quite a bit of time peeling each of them. <laughs> oh, you, had, you had to help put that on? No, it was great though, but... Um, oh, it is, yeah, it's yeah, gold yeah. as well, eh? Yes. From a distance, it looks just it's like... It's gold. It's a plywood beneath coming through. Oh, which wow. Which gives it this... Gold feel. Yeah. Oh. Gold feel, but it was painstaking, intricate work trying to peel off each of the letters. Oh, so they painted over it because it looks like drywall almost, but it's a piece of wood, and then it has this lettering that's on there, which is mimicking in a way the stenciled names are on the suitcases and things. Oh, it blends in with the Timorishita box. And you realize that, well, nowadays suitcases all have little wheels and pull out handles and things like yeah. that. These things in themselves are heavy and just imagining yeah. the, well, having to lug them around. When I see these that look heavy to lug around and there's the ones that have handles, I'm reminded of the Timor Shida box as well as other boxes. We had an interesting donation of a tea box that was used by someone's grandfather and essentially once the tea was run out in these tea line tin boxes, they just essentially attach some rope to some of that and drag it around. A lot of the suitcases we have seem in some ways like, oh, that would actually be quite nice in comparison to dragging around a tin line tea box. So that's a little <laughs> bit about our magic hour here. I think that was going to talk about. Maybe this podcast will act like a virtual exhibit in your head. I will second that. Thanks so much for coming out. Thanks for having me.